Welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture that regularly brings you the voices of the voiceless from Calcutta to Casablanca on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, as well as streaming worldwide on kpfk.org. My name is David Lloyd, here with co-host Rana Sharif, members of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or Swana Collective, that brings you Swana Region Radio every week. Please note that our programs are now available for download anytime on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. Just search for Swana Region Radio. Due to this week's urgent station fund drive, we'll not be doing our usual broadcast, but instead have the opportunity to do this extended interview with our guests on our podcast show. Neither Swana Region Radio nor our station, KPFK, ever accept funding from corporate entities, which is what allows us to do this kind of programming every week. But that does mean we are completely dependent on listener support to stay on air. This week, KPFK is holding an urgent fundraiser. So please, if you have enjoyed this or our other shows, support the station that allows us to do this important work by going to kpfk.org and donating there. Any amount that you can afford will be greatly appreciated. So today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Mossab Abu Toha, the author of a wonderful new book of poetry, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, that came out this year from City Lights Books. Personally, I've been absorbed in it for the past couple of weeks and keep finding new things in it that render some of the most moving and telling accounts of how it is to live under blockade and the constant threat and reality of Israeli bombardment. But these are not only, I quote, poems that have bombs and corpses, destroyed houses, and shrapnel-covered streets. They carry also the hope for a future beyond occupation and settler colonial violence. And I quote again from one of his poems, they imagine a sky only occupied by birds and swollen clouds. They tell of a world where the people of Gaza, I quote again, love what we have, no matter how little, because if we don't everything will be gone. And we're joined in this conversation by American poet and longstanding Palestine solidarity activist, Amiel Alkali, whose fine interview with Mossab is included at the end of the volume and who had so much to do with bringing this book into being. Thank you, David. It's such an honor to host uh, Mossab and Amiel. Mossab Abu Toha is a Palestinian poet, scholar and librarian who was born in Gaza and spent his life there. A graduate in English language teaching and literature, he taught English at the United Nations Relief and Works Agency UNRWA schools in Gaza from 2016 until 2019. And he is the founder of the Edward Said Library in Gaza's first English language library. Musab is a columnist for Aerosmith Press and his writings from Gaza have also appeared in The Nation and Literary Hub. His poems have been published on the Poetry Foundation's website, in Poetry Magazine, Banipal, Solstice, the Merkaz Review, The New Arab, Peripheries, and other journals. They are collected in his new book, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear. 
Amiel Al-Khalai, poet, novelist, translator, scholar, and activist, has published numerous collections of poetry, including Scrap Metal, From the Warning Factions, Neither Wit Nor Gold, as well as the novel Islanders, and the scholarly monograph, After Jews and Arabs, Remaking Levantine Culture. Al-Khalai's parents were Sephardic Jews from Belgrade, Serbia, and much of his work engages questions of religious identity, language, and culture, particularly the histories of culture of the Balkans and the Middle East. Welcome to the show, Moslav and Amiel. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, perhaps we could start, Moslav, by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how your family came to live in Gaza. Well, um, I was born in a refugee camp called Ashat camp uh, to the west of, the Gaza, of Gaza City. Uh, I'm a grandchild of uh, refugees who were expelled from Yaffa during the Palestine catastrophe or the so-called Nakba in 1948. Um, I grew up in the refugee camp uh, before moving to a, a, a neighboring town uh, that is called now Beit Lahia. Uh, it's a town full of trees and, and big farms. Um, so I still live here with my family. Uh, it's not very far from the Jabalia refugee camp where my mother and my uncles grew up. Uh, it's one of the most densely populated uh, areas uh, in the world. Um, so I got the chance to live in, uh, in small houses where you can hear the people moving around your house because of the very narrow streets between the houses in the refugee camp. And I remember very much uh, how we used to play in the streets. Uh, because there, there were, and I think still, no playgrounds uh, in the area where I lived and where I moved to, so that there is no place for the kids to enjoy because everything is. Uh, I mean, there is there. No one thinks about building a park or something because Israel destroys houses and towers, where many families are still homeless and living in rented places. Um, yeah. So, Mossab, since you talked about your grandparents coming from Yaffa and uh, that experience of being forced into refugee status that continues because Israel will not permit the return of refugees, I did wonder if I could ask you to read um, the wonderful poem, My Grandfather and Home, from, from the book, just to start us into some experience of your poetry. Sure, yeah. Before I start reading the poem, I'd like to, to tell you and the audience that I had uh, no chance, unfortunately, to meet my grandfather because he passed away before I was born and even before, before my father and mother uh, married each other. So to me, he represents something that I couldn't lay my hand on. It's just something like Yaffa itself and the rest of the, the historic Palestine. So the poem is titled, my grandfather and home. My grandfather and home. One. My grandfather used to count the days for return with his fingers. He then used the stones to count. Not enough. He used the clouds, birds, people. Absence turned out to be too long. 36 years until he died. For us now, it is over 70 years. My grandpa lost his memory. He forgot the numbers, the people. He forgot home. Two, I wish I were with you, grandpa. 
I would have taught myself to write you poems, volumes of them, and paint our home for you. I would have sewn you from soil, a garment decorated with plants and the trees you had grown. I would have made you perfume from the oranges and soap from the sky's tears of joy. Couldn't think of something purer. Three, I go, I go to the cemetery every day. I look for your grave, but in vain. Are they sure they buried you? Or did you turn into a tree? Or perhaps you flew off with a bird to the nowhere. Four, I place your photo in an earthenware pot. I water it every Monday and Thursday at sunset. I was told you used to fast those days. On Ramadan, I water it every day for 30 days or less or more. Five, how big do you want our home to be? I can continue to write poems until you are satisfied. If you wish, I can annex a neighboring planet or two. Six, for this home, I shall not draw boundaries, no punctuation marks. Thank you, Mosab. I, I love that ending, the kind of removal of boundaries. It's, it's such an important image. And, and in the poem, you mention your grandfather losing his memory. And I think your poetry is about both the immediate conditions in, in Gaza, as we said at the beginning, the terror of living with routine Israeli violence that's also terribly unpredictable at the same time as its routine. And even more, I think your poems stress the beauty of the Palestinian capacity for surviving and, and as in this poem, for building which I think is, is very powerful. But memory or, or not forgetting, it's also an important aspect of your poems. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about the relationship you see between poetry and documenting the present and past of Palestinian life. Though, of course, I'm gonna instantly hasten to add that your poems are far too lyrical in their form to be confused with simply documentary poetry. But, but I, I, I am interested in the ways they, they use memory as a way of, of making sure that forgetting is, is not allowed. Yeah. Well, I mean, memory, we, I can talk about my memory of firsthand experiences that uh, during my own life as, as a son, as a child, as a father, a, a young father now. So when I'm talking about memory of the war, and I'm going to read part of a poem titled The Wounds, uh, about my own experience of getting wounded uh, during an Israeli airstrike. So I'm talking about memory to document my own experience as someone who lived this experience. But the other part of talking about memory is about things that I heard from my father about my grandfather and what life looked like in the past. So we are removed very far from this memory. What? Two way, two in two parts, because I didn't hear these things from my grandfather because sometimes I have questions that I don't, I cannot, I cannot ask those questions to my grandfather if, uh, directly because he's dead. And the other thing is that I cannot go to Yaffa now, the place about which I hear a lot because I'm not allowed to go to Yaffa and not, not only go to Yaffa, I'm not allowed to leave Gaza, even to go to Jerusalem to attend my visa interview at the American embassy. We do not have an embassy in Gaza. Uh, and there is a poem in my collection titled uh, To My Visa Interviewer. So I'm talking about memory 
as something that I, he I heard from my father about my grandfather and memory uh, about things that I recall from things that I experienced uh, firsthand, things I, that I watched, things that I saw, things I felt as someone who got uh, wounded during an airstrike. Um, so we are very removed from this memory. And maybe this allows us to, to add some imagination to this memory because it's not very clear to us. So sometimes we give it some dimension, whether it's a bad one. I mean, sometimes it's you think you, you imagine things uh, to be very, very dangerous, uh, very evil. And sometimes you try to add some kind colors to this memory because you don't want it to be very uh, gloomy. Um, so I think poetry is my poetry, at least, is about uh, my life, uh, the life of my grandfather, the life of my parents, the life of my my nation as a Palestinian. Uh, so it's it's about a true uh, occurrences and also about things that I imagine that have happened to others or would have happened to me as someone who survived numerous attacks and was about to die during an airstrike. Thank you so much, Musab, for sharing that. Uh, my father was actually born in Gaza, um, mm. but we are uh, refugees from Khalid, from Hebron. So it's really um, um, powerful to hear you talk about recollections of memories, uh, creating them, constructing them generatively and imaginative, imaginatively, because in many ways, my father has no memory of Gaza and cannot return to or visit the place of his birth. Um, so you mentioned a poem as you were reflecting upon memory. I thought perhaps now, uh, before I go into my question, if you could go ahead and read that um, uh, that piece to us. Into my visa interviewer? No, uh, uh, you had mentioned one before that one um, about your experience of being attacked. Uh, yeah, the wounds. Yes, yeah, a section from wounds. Yeah. From wounds, yeah, yeah thank yeah. you. Well, uh, it's on page 73 of my book. Uh, I'm going to skip to it now. Um, so most of the things that are included, if not all, are real things. I mean, everything that I'm going to mention in the poem is 99% true, things that I remember. So I was wounded in uh, two, 2009. I was 16 at the time. And I wrote this poem just last year. So about 11 or 12 years after the incident. And my memory was clear cut, clear about what happened during that time. The wounds, Israeli aggression against Gaza, December 27th, 28th, until January 18th, 2009. A Saturday, first day of the week in Gaza, age 16, and after the, fi the first finals, I finished my Arabic exam. I liked Arabic as much as I liked English and soccer. I discussed my answers with my father, Home by noon, we stood on the roof of our house, watched pigeons my father raised as a hobby. The limitless ceiling above us was part blue, part white. Ships of clouds sailing slowly in windless sky. A series of explosions shook the house, the neighborhood shook the earth. Words fell from my mouth, broke on my stiff bare feet. Birds from nowhere flew aimlessly in the open sky. Some hid in trees. The pigeons in their coop, in their big coop, trembled. Rock pigeons, Egyptian pigeons, 
king pigeons and halabi pigeons. A tiny egg fell. My answers must have fallen off the pages of my exam, maybe melting from fear. I saw black smoke rise from a building a few kilometers away, blacker than the ink of my exam sheets. We didn't hear the F-16s until they finished their airstrikes. They descended from the inferno. Dante hadn't mentioned them. About 80 F-16 aircrafts with their bombs struck Gaza in unison, like a big drum roll announcing someone's death. But it was more than one death, I thought. It had to be. We hurried to the radio, that old dirty box that usually vomits blood and, and body parts into our ears. Hospitals full of burning wounds, moans, a corpse, and a girl missing her leg, lying on a cot or a bloody floor. Okay, I'm going to stop here. So this poem continues uh, for about six pages. Thank you so much. So you were 16, the moment that you were writing about, you were 16 years old, correct, Mosab, in this um, piece? Yeah, I'm reflecting in this poem about my experience of being wounded when I was 16, but I wrote it just last year at the age of uh, so 20. In yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. No, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But uh, so in much of your poetry, or in a lot of your poetry, you um, reflect on your own childhood and the children of Gaza, your nieces and nephews, your own son and daughter. You mentioned that you are a young father and about the bitter irony that, quote, children learn their numbers best when they can count how many homes or schools were destroyed, end quote. And that's from Palestinian streets. Yeah. Um, this reminds me of the work of uh, Dr. Nadir Ashalhu Kavorkian, who talks about the concept of unchilding within the context of settler colonial violence and Palestinian children specifically. Could you speak to us a little bit about what it means to grow up in a place of constant violence? Well, I mean, uh, to be in a place full of violent attacks, you would uh, worry about yourself, worry about the people around you. So I've, I experienced this first uh, just in May of 2000, uh, 2021, during the May attack, just a year from now. So I was a father of three children. And that was the major, uh, the first major attack for me to experience with my children. So I, I had to, to act as if I was fine. Okay, don't worry, no, no, it's going to, to go. Uh, no worries, you are fine, you are safe here. So you need to pretend that everything is fine, although, within you inside inside within yourself you are melting from fear because sometimes i keep looking at the ceiling above me <laughs> maybe it's going a bomb will fall we are going to be between the ceiling and the floor so to be living in a place that's under a threat all the time means that you need to be yourself and not be yourself that's that's something that we need to keep in mind especially when you have children that and especially children, I mean, I don't remember myself uh, uh, realizing that I was born in an occupied country. I mean, just suppose that you were born in Gaza, uh, you are now seven or eight, and then you hear a helicopter or an F-16 bombing something. I mean, do you ask your father what was that? I mean, how, how can your father explain to you that, okay, uh, I'm so sorry, you were born in Gaza or in the West Bank or in Palestine or now in Ukraine for children and or in Syria or in different other countries. How, how does a father explain this to children? Okay, so we are living in Palestine and 
there are Israelis who are bombing us. I mean, how can I explain to children that, okay, Israel was established here and Zionism, etc. I mean, these children do not care about history. And sometimes neither do I. I just want to live just like others want to live. I don't care about this. So we are going, to, I keep convincing myself. So I'm going to live for 70 years. I mean, how much of this, how much of these 70 years I'm going to live in fear? And for the other people on the other side, how much of the years they are going to live? Are they going to fear for their lives? And do they care about the others on the other side? So that, that's a very important question for me. And, uh, and thank you for mentioning the poem, Palestinian Streets, um, because uh, children here, uh, they learn numbers in school, uh, just in, during, you know, so the teacher writes the number, the, the numbers on the board, okay, five plus five, 10, uh, five uh, minus five, uh, zero, etc. But the children on TV, when they hear, okay, uh, someone was killed, that makes it one. And then three in another attack, oh, now four, oh, four people are killed. Uh, a bomb, okay, let's count. Oh, there's a bomb there. Oh. And there, is, there are two bombs there. Okay, that's the... So they become reporters. They mention numbers to each other. Uh, and also for the truce between, or the ceasefire between, uh, during the attacks. Okay, we have five hours of uh, ceasefire. Let's go back home and collect things uh, to take with us to the shelter, etc. So, okay, uh, let's uh, take, uh, it's four hours at, at a four hour uh, ceasefire. Uh, we have now uh, one hour. Okay, then the, the time is, is, uh, is going out, uh, half an hour, let's finish. So they realize that there is a limit and then they can go down with numbers. So they, you know, they subtract numbers. So they understand now this because of the attacks. Mosab, can I ask you, um, since you grew up in Gaza, but you teach and obviously learned English impeccably, why you chose to write these poems in English um, and what it means to you. I mean, the, the, the poems are colloquial. They're, they're brilliant in the turns they give to the English language in my reading of them. I mean, nobody would know that you were not a native English speaker, you know, not born to the language. But, but why did you choose to write in English? Do you also write in Arabic? Um, is it to reach to a, a wider audience, or is it just a language in which poetry comes to you? I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about all of that. Yeah, well, I live on the border between English and Arabic. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, my, Arabic is my life, of course, but also is English. Um, so it, during the 2014 Israeli attack on Gaza, I kept po posting on Facebook to my friends about what's happening in Gaza in English. So, I mean, I mean, people in Egypt, uh, I mean, I don't, uh, a, they are not my goal when I write about what's happening is because they can read about this uh, in Arabic and different outlets. But I was using my English to explain and show the people in words what's happening around me. And many of the people uh, in my friends list liked what I wrote and they thought that it was very poetic of me. Um, I mean, before that, I never considered writing in English. But when I saw that many people were uh, interacting, uh, I mean, acting with my poetry and my writing, 
I thought it was better for me to use this language to reach a uh, uh, bigger audience. Um, so I'm familiar with English literature, poetry and fiction, and, and I admire English literature. And I think I, uh, I rescued uh, a book from Under the Rubble, and I'm going to talk about this, of course, about the Edward side of Calabria. So I rescued uh, uh, the Norton Anthology of American Literature from Under the Rubble of my university building. That was This is a book we're very familiar with because we teach yeah. from it all the time here, yes. So maybe, maybe that book was a reason why mm. I can write more and more Engli uh, English uh, uh, poetry. Uh, maybe it gave me something uh, miraculous because I risked that book. Maybe some words stuck uh, into my mm. hands and it gave me the power to write more and more poetry in English. But generally, when I write in English, uh, I, had, I have uh, an English-speaking audience. I mean, people in the West, especially in Britain and America, because these people... Uh, I mean, not, not the people I'm, I'm talking to, but I mean, the regimes, the governments, uh, the people who vote. I mean, these people have much to do with what's happening to us in Gaza and Palestine, and maybe in the whole world, of course. Um, so I'm talking to them. I want them to imagine uh, what we are living through. So these, these poems are intended to reach to them. Uh, that's the goal. But I also write poetry in Arabic. Um, I don't usually decide in which language to write. Uh, sometimes an image comes to me in, in English. Um, sometimes uh, this word uh, is linked to another word in my English dictionary. So this is how the, the poem builds up. Sometimes uh, it happened one time that I wrote a poem uh, in Arabic about the mirror. And I, I challenged myself to write poem about the same object, which is the mirror in Arabic or in English. So I tried both languages and it turned out that both, both poems were very different. Listening to Swana Region Radio, which is a regular program on independent Pacifica station KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles that streams live on kpfk.org. Neither Swana Region Radio nor our host station KPFK ever accept funding from corporate entities, which is what allows us to do this kind of programming every week. And as in this week's show, to talk about a place like Gaza in a way that mainstream media never will. But this week, KPFK is holding an urgent fundraiser to stay alive and stay on air. So please, if you've enjoyed this or our other shows that are still available on our podcast sites, please support the station that allows us to do this important work by going to kpfk.org and donating there. Any amount you can afford will be greatly appreciated. Um, Mossab, I believe Amiel had some role in helping you put together and edit the poems for publication. But since I 
suspect Amiel will be very modest about his role. Maybe you could say a little about what Amiel did, and then maybe Amiel can speak to the importance of supporting writers in Palestine. And also, I know, Amiel, you've done other translation work uh, from places like Syria, uh, Yemen, Iraq, all of which have been so devastated by US, and of course, I'll add the UK, since Mossad brought that up, um, wars that they have actually sanctioned, supplied, armed, and so forth. But Mossad, um, tell us a little bit about Amiel <laughs> and, and uh, his run. And just to remind our listeners, we're talking also, as well as with Mossab, we're talking with the American poet Amiel Alkali. Yeah, I mean, Amiel is, has been a very great friend of mine. Um, he got in touch with me uh, when I was uh, creating the Edward Said Public Library. Uh, so he was one of the first supporters of the library. And I think I then introduced myself as a poet. So I first um, was, was known to the outside world as a founder of the Edward Said Public Library. Uh, I never mentioned that I wrote poetry or I was aspiring to be a poet. Uh, so when I knew that, uh, that Amiel was uh, an established poet and translator and scholar, not to say, not to mention uh, that he is uh, an academic. Um, so I started to exchange some poems with them, with, with him, along with some very uh, few friends uh, whom I trust. So uh, Amiel was familiar uh, with my work and he encouraged me to, uh, to put together um, a collection of poems uh, so that we can try to them. It, was until, uh, it wasn't until May of last year uh, that we took it very seriously, that we need to publish some, something. And Amiel's, Amiel was the link uh, to this magical uh, occurrence in my life. Uh, so he connected me with City Lights. He sent a sample to them. And I think they found it uh, wonderful. And they asked for more. And Amiel is still uh, in the book with me. And uh, he is part of it, of course, until now, and he will continue to be a companion of mine. That's so great. I, I, I love to hear that story. And, and Amiel, maybe just say a bit more about why, why you do that work. Why, why is it important to you to, to be helping Mossad get published, but also, I know, doing translations from Syrian and uh, yeah. poets and other, other work that you do? Thank you, Mossab, and thank you. David and Rana for having us. Uh, you know, most, when Mossab talked about uh, his kids and not caring about history, you know, uh, I could have easily been born in Italy or in Yugoslavia or somewhere else, but I happened to be born in the US, you know, and I came from a family of refugee immigrants who, who many of extended family were, were killed, destroyed, disappeared, etc. And so that what Mossab said was incredibly moving to me. And one of the most um, illuminating things I've ever heard, and I've thought about this all my life. Uh, and he just kind of put his finger directly on it, which is typical of how Mossab approaches things, um, which is why I think we, you know, we immediately hit it off. Um, which is, um, Growing up, I 
I might have thought I am in Italy or I am in Yugoslavia. Who knows where I am? You know, because it's, it's such an enclosed, strange world of, of, of these histories that are somehow suffocating and enveloping, but also enriching and so on and so forth. So obviously that has something to do with it. I, I'm also, you know, as somebody who's lived in other places, who grew up in another lang other languages, um, you know, get very exasperated with the U.S. Uh, quote unquote literary scene. And, you know, my work in this area has never been like to quote unquote help somebody. I want to challenge people here, you know, to make them understand, look at some other parts of the world, look what's going on. And so, you know, I did a lot of work from Bosnia uh, for a number of years. I also did the first and only anthology of Arab Jewish writing, um, Keys to the Garden, which was very surprising to a lot of people and still is. You know? uh, and I think it's one of the most marginalized literatures ever that I've encountered. Um, and so I'm drawn to, also I want to use the position I have to advantage, you know, however, however that can be, bring people into, and, and part of, for instance, with City Lights is such a magical thing is you have to reach readers in the US at a point of production. In other words, at a point where writers are going to look at these works, not where they're going to be consumed by a, by a, by a middle brow public, you know, but where writers will be challenged by these works. And so I helped to bring a lot of stuff to City Lights, for instance, Sinan's book, Ijam, uh, Iraqi Rhapsody, Sinan Antoun's book, or uh, Abdel Latif Labi, I helped, you know, one of the first books of his that was published in the US. So I'm, there's a lot of stuff you wouldn't even know about that I've been involved in getting published just because I feel it needs to be done. The Faraj Bayraktar project insanely lasted 16 years and is an indication to me of just how, you know, how skewed the system actually is. And Mosab and I had been talking for some time about uh, maybe making a magazine, trying to create a, a group of translators to bring work from Gaza to the US. And I gathered a group in New York and we started, we did some poems by a wonderful poet in Gaza, Nasser Rabah, and published some in the Michigan Quarterly. And then when, 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 when the events in May happened, I just had this feeling now is the time, you know, we, we should do a book of Mossab's and um, happily City Lights, you know, immediately Elaine Katzenberger, who's the director and wonderful old friend, um, just immediately said, yeah, let's, let's do this. And so it happened. Um, and I felt very strongly about including the, uh, an interview or something that would give some sense of who Mossab is, where he's coming from, what, 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 the, what those layers of history are. And since I'm quite familiar with, you know, Palestinian history and, and all those particulars, I think, you know, I, I, I think I managed to frame it in such a way that a lot came through that interview. Uh, a lot came through that interview and some very profound and surprising moments, I think. No, absolutely. It's it's uh, superb to have that interview in the book, and um, I encourage <laughs> our listeners to pick up this book at City Lights um, that, that we're talking about today. Things you may find hidden in my ear by Mostab Abutoha, and I, just just to comment quickly. Um, 
I, I know that Edward Said was particularly irritated by the lack of translation that happened into English, from, whereas other languages are constantly translating. And I, I think that may lead us to our, our next question, Rana. Yeah, um, thank you, Emil, for sharing the kind of um, collective determination, this relationship that really brought um, this work together. So thank you so much for outlining that. And um, Mosabi, you mentioned earlier the Edward Said Library. So among the many things you've done, you founded the Edward Said Library, which is a primary, uh, primarily English language library, now with branches in Beit uh, Lahia and in Gaza City. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how uh, this came about and um, share um, how listeners can actually support and even expand the work that your library does? Yeah, the, the funny thing for me is that when I was collecting books from people worldwide, I never thought that I, I was cre creating uh, the Edward Said Public Library. I, I even didn't have a name in my mind. I didn't have a budget to rent a place or buy bookshelves, etc. So I was just uh, asking for books to compensate for my own my own book collection because our house was uh, bombarded or not bombarded our neighbor's house adjacent to very very close to our house was completely damaged uh, so our house was the a, uh, the walls of the three rooms of our house were blown out and I lost my book collection I was a fresh graduate uh, in English. Um, so I lost many books, um, and also my alma mater, the Islamic University of Gaza, the administration building of that university was bombarded by the Israeli uh, warplanes. Um, so those two places, which I dearly held in my heart, and my home and my alma mater, they were completely uh, in ruin. Um, so I took pictures of my own house, and a picture of the Northern Anthology of American Literature, which I managed to rescue from under the rubble, holding it in my hand. And it, it was funny that uh, uh, on the T-shirt I was wearing, uh, there was written on it, whatever. <laughs> it was, I, was, I was holding the book in my hand and there was whatever on my T-shirt. Um, so, I mean, people started to, uh, to ask if they could send books to me. So I said, yeah, of course, please send. Uh, so I thank these friends very much uh, for what they did. And then I thought, if I was, if I was able to, to collect books for myself, why not enlar uh, uh, enlarge this uh, project and ask for books for a public library that I can try to establish for all people in Gaza uh, to use? So I managed to raise about 600 books in my own house. Uh, I remember that I was uh, in the middle of an interview in my house about the library that I was trying to build. And my wife was in the hospital giving birth to our second child. <laughs> so I was swamped in these interviews. Um, so when I reached number 600 of books, um, I I learned raising on Indiegogo and people started to donate. Uh, I mean, it was very slow. I, a, a very dear friend of mine uh, reached out. I mean, she was not a friend of mine, but she reached out as a poet and someone who is interested in supporting. Her name is Katha Pollitt. Uh, she's an American poet based in New York. Uh, and she's a columnist for The Nation. 
So she said, okay, I can robbery in the nation. And, and she did it. And the amount of money just skipped upward. I mean, many people were just very enthusiastic about bringing this to reality. But the obstacle, the big obstacle for me was because I live in Gaza and Gaza is not uh, very much liked by the Palestinian Authority, which is based in the West Bank, the other part of Palestine. Uh, I cannot, you know, go to, a, I mean, go and get a license for this library and open a bank account for it to receive money from abroad. Uh, so I had to, you know, beg some people, please, can you just receive the money for the library? We can give you some money. Uh, just, just make things easy for us. So, I mean, it was really a troublesome um, uh, step in establishing the library. But finally, um, just three years after that, uh, Mariam Saeed, uh, Edward Saeed's uh, wife, um, connected us, the library, with Mecca, Middle East Children's Alliance, based in Berkeley in California. And this uh, organization, this charity organization, which does uh, really amazing work in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Jordan, in Beirut, in Syria, uh, now they function as the sponsor and the fiscal channel for the lab, the, the, the now two libraries. It was one lab, but now the, these are, there are two libraries. One in Beit Lahia, uh, where I can't currently live. And the other part uh, was opened in 2019, uh, is in Gaza City. The first one that I was talking about was opened in 2017. So just in two years, we had two branches. And there are hundreds and hundreds of kids who come to the library to read stories, borrow books, uh, participate in reading activities, drawing activities, music activities, computer activities, uh, going out in the open, uh, playing, etc. So it's it's to me and to other people who could watch it, it's more than a library. It's a cultural center, full of activity, and many many uh, uh, groups of young people come to the library, use its space for free to rehearse for a play that they are going to act on the stage. Uh, some friends who just gather and say, okay, let's uh, start a book club. Uh, let's use the space of this library. And it's, it's open to the public. It's, it's a free, it's, uh, it's open all the time. People can use the computers, etc. But for me, I never imagined that this could happen. It's a miracle. And thanks to the people in America and in other European countries who could give a hand and create this really important place in Gaza. Because, you know, in Gaza, electricity cuts, uh, siege, uh, hot weather during the summer and cold weather during winter. People do not have a space to go and breathe out. So the, the library is something for them and for many children. It's a place for people to resort to and enjoy maybe an hour or two hours of during their day. So, uh, so just quickly to ask, so if people want to support the Edward Said Library, they should uh, contribute via the Middle East Children's Alliance. Is yeah, and they can, yeah, right. They can just mention in their check or in their message or whatever. Okay, I want this to go to the Edward because they have many, many projects. 
<laughs> right. No, of course we know them well. Yeah. yeah, we've we've had them on the show in the past. But but uh, can they also donate books via Mecca? Yes. Well, I mean, I don't think Mecca can receive books and ship them to Gaza. I mean, for Mecca, just donate financially. If anyone wants to send books, they can do it themselves. Okay. Well, we'll 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 link that information on our social media and in the show announcement. We are sort of down to the last 10 minutes or so of, of the show. And I, I did want to ask you about the photos that you put in the book, because not every poetry book contains beautiful color po- uh, photographs in the middle of it, and particularly not ones that, that then also have these little poems as captions, or, or at least captions that feel to me in any case like poems. Tell us a little bit about the photos, why you wanted to include them. And uh, if you'd like to talk about one in particular, of course, that would be great. I can answer this, uh, and also Amiel can add to it, because he, he was part of the book creation. I told the editor at City Lights, Elaine, and also Amir, that uh, I love pictures in Gaza. Nature, sometimes after some attacks, the sea, the clouds, the flowers, the boats in the sea. Um, so for my uh, uh, book cover, I send picture that I thought they would like to use. Um, so the book cover, the photo on the book cover is of my taking. Uh, and then I kept showing them some pictures. Okay, let's, I want to show you some pictures. So they liked them and they thought maybe we can create a series of pictures to include in the book and to uh, accompany these photos with some captions that would function as um, a chain of, of poems, something to work like. But it worked out, but it was not easy to choose the pictures and to make it function as a, a, photo, a photo poem, or I don't know. Maybe Emil can add to this because he was in, involved in this. Well, you know, I, I felt it was very important to uh, have that mix of images where there are these things of tremendous beauty, you know, next to other pretty horrifying things. And just it, it somehow served to really clarify everything that the book is about and that Mossab is, is depicting and with, with, with great beauty, you know, even the ones that, you know, that are not depicting beautiful things, they are records. And, and the texts also served as a perfect kind of accompaniment, I thought. Thank no, you so absolutely. Much. Sorry, go ahead, David. No, I was just I was just agreeing yeah. with Amiel. The, the photographs are extraordinary and, and beautifully counterpointed by these almost you know haiku like little little captions. But back to you, Rana. Sorry. Yeah, no. Um, the visual essays are just are really important and beautifully woven into Masab's um, poetry. Uh, we don't have that much time left, but I'd like to invite you both, if you could, um, close us out with a brief reading from your poetry, each of you. That would be wonderful. Um, okay, I would like to read the title poem of my poetry collection. Things you may find hidden in my ear. Um, in my book, it's on page 92, and it's the same as my birth year. That was a coincidence. <laughs> okay. 
things you may find hidden in my ear. I wrote it uh, for my uh, surgeon, doctor. Things you may find hidden in my ear for Alicia M. Quesnell, MD. One, when you open my ear, touch it gently. My mother's voice lingers somewhere inside. Her voice is the echo that helps me recover equilibrium when I feel dizzy during my attentiveness. You may encounter songs in Arabic, poems in English I recite to myself, or a song I chant to the chirping birds in our backyard. When you stitch the cut, don't forget to put all these back in my ear. Put them back in order, as you would do with the books on your shelf. Two, the drone's buzzing sound, the roar of an F-16, the screams of bombs falling on houses, on fields, and on bodies, of rockets flying away, rid my ear canal of them all. Spray the perfume of your smiles on the incision. Inject the song of life into my veins. Wake me up. Gently beat the, the drum so my mind may dance with yours, my doctor, day and night. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mosab. I have one, uh, the one that I, is longer, I won't be able to read the letter to the Americans, but I have a very short one called Exercise. Every day, try and imagine how far you are from Gaza. Thank you, Amiel. I'm afraid that is all the time we have on our show for today for this podcast. Our guests have been Gaza-based poet and librarian Mossab Abu Toha, and also poet and activist and scholar Amiel Alkali. Thank you both for being on the show with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Rana and David. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining great. us. Indeed. This is all the time we have for this Wanda Region Radio podcast. All of our shows are available to download at kpfk.org. And if you miss all or part of our live broadcasts, you can listen to this show and our previous shows on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public, or wherever you found this podcast. You can also follow our updates on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank, thanks, as always, to Ankine. Antaram for post-production. My name is Rana Sharif of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective. And be, on behalf of my co-host, David Lloyd, and all of our collective members, I would like to wish our listeners a great day. Thank you.